only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Please take your Bibles, or if you don't have one, uh, take the Bible in front of you, the blue Bible in front of you, and turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, as it says in your bulletin. Uh, that's found on page 941 in that blue Bible in front of you. And as you're turning there, I'll just say a brief word about this passage, a wonderful passage that talks about how uh, people like us, like all of us, uh, like myself, like everyone else, who are not right, not righteous, um, not holy, are made right with God, are made righteous uh, in how he has offered his very own son. God has done that so that that might happen. But let us read now this passage, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Once again, it's on page 941. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us seek God's grace as we come to his word. Lord God, open up our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. We ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. We just uh, cannot fathom, can we, the horror of what has happened in Haiti. It's like the devastating tsunami in 2004 that we, we hardly have a category for understanding what's happening. You see people breaking down even in, the, in trying to describe the horror of it. It's such a complex and comprehensive disaster in which the very people who can help are themselves a part of the disaster. And then the help that has come from the outside, we know, has been so severely hampered by transportation, nightmares, communication shut down, inadequate organization and leadership. It's overwhelmed so many resources. Now, imagine if the whole world... Every part of the earth was shaken by global earthquakes. I mean, every, there was no, no town, no village, no farmhouse, no city. Nothing was exempt 
from the destruction. Nobody could help anybody because every city, every community, every person needed outside help. There's nobody to help because everybody needed help. A perfect storm that overwhelms humanity completely. I think that's a good analogy for Paul's description of human sin in Romans 1 through 3. This first major section, he shows how this catastrophic disaster of sin has struck the human race so that we all are on the precipice of God's wrath apart from his mercy. The wrath of God, he began in chapter 1, verse 18, is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. He detailed our rejection of God and our idolatry. He detailed the resulting hatred and mistreatment of one another, our ethical and moral corruption. He detailed how even the people of God, the Jewish nation, stood and do stand under the same judgment and wrath. And so here in chapter 3 and verse 9, Jews and Greeks all are under sin. He goes on to say in verse 10, none is righteous, not even one. The evidence and indictment is airtight, unassailable, so that he says right here in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Cranfield says these words evoke the picture of the defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of the evidence which has been brought against him. Or Caseman, he's under accusation with no possibility of defense. There we are, under the mighty earthquake of sin, under the judgment and Wrath of God. And there's no escape from it. There's nothing we can do for ourselves. Not one of us can help the other because we're all in the same situation. Apart from the grace of God, what good is it going to do for you to stand there in judgment day with me or me with you? None at all. None at all. We are all in the tsunami of God's wrath. And unless he rescues us, we have no help. And Really, he's the one least likely, we think, to be the source because he's the one we have refused. (laughs) He's the very one we revolted against. That's the heart of our sin. That's the source of all of our sin. He shows in chapter 1, we haven't delighted in him as our creator. We've turned to the creation to make it some form of a God for us. Because we just couldn't stomach God being our God. We had to have another one. (laughs) We had to make our own. We turned our nose up at him. We revolted against him. We wouldn't take him as our source of life and meaning and satisfaction. He was not the center of our desire. It says here in verse 11 of chapter 3, No one seeks for God. That's the essence and root of all of our evil. And and on the bookend there in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no awe of Him. There's no joy in Him. There's no trust and reverence and respect and submission. I love the way Piper puts it. Before we knew Christ, 
We had no delight in God, and Christ was just a vague historical figure. What we enjoyed was food and friendships and productivity and investments and vacations and hobbies and games and reading and shopping and sex and sports and art and TV and travel, but not God. He was an idea, even a good one, and a topic for discussion, but he was not a treasure of delight. And thus we are under God's wrath and judgment because we will not have him by nature. We don't want him. He disgusts us and we push him away and we run from him. And that's why we hurt each other so much. Because we have become ungodlike. God is love. We are not. <laughs> Basically, there's so much that lacks in our love. There's so much that we, so many ways we all know that we have been hurt and we have, have hurt. It's because we're not like God. It's because we've abandoned Him. That is our, the heart of our situation. And yet, wonderfully, in this situation, here in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's as though the rescuers have come into the earthquake. That's what this is like. In, in the awful tsunami of judgment and wrath, enter the righteousness of God. The active, saving activity of God. So I want to first look a bit more at this term, the righteousness of God. And, and today we're going to see how God acts in Christ, looking at the word redemption in this passage and the word propitiation. Words that don't just flow from our lips all the time, but they're, they're critical words. And we're going to look at those as God's acts in Christ, uh, his acts of righteousness in Christ. Next week, going to look at the other aspect of his act in Christ, and that is the justifying of his people. But first, his active work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the backdrop of this word, uh, righteousness of God, is found, as so many times things are, in the Old Testament. And it's against that Old Testament background that we can really understand this term, the righteousness of God. And so I want to look at a few passages. We will turn to read uh, one, but I want you just to hear how the word righteousness in the Old Testament is associated with deliverance and salvation and faithfulness and loving kindness. We tend to think of righteousness as only that aspect of God that will end up meaning curtains for us in terms of our sin, the righteousness of God. And we are not righteous. So if God acts righteously, he must judge us. It's the same word so often translated for justice, his, his justice or righteousness. But notice what the, how the Old Testament uses this. Psalm 31, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. So he'd be righteous to deliver the psalmist. Or in Psalm 35, 24, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. You will And don't let them rejoice over me. So delivering me from my enemies is an act of your righteousness. 
Now that's encouraging when you think, hey, the righteousness of God has been revealed for you under sin, you under the dominion of sin. Psalm 36.10, notice this. Continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. And the way the poetry of, of the Psalms work works is this is a parallel statement. Continue your steadfast love and your righteousness as though they're one and the same thing. Or that you are showing your righteousness to me by extending your steadfast love. Psalm 50, uh, well, along those lines with steadfast love, Psalm 103, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. We quote that verse a lot in terms of the covenant, how God will act toward our children. Well, in one breath, he says, your loving kindness is from everlasting. That means that your righteousness will go from our children to our grandchildren and on. But that's not a righteousness of judgment against their sin, obviously. It's a righteousness that manifests itself in loving kindness, in delivering us, in vindicating us. The psalmist in Psalm 51, that great psalm of confession, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. As you deliver me and show yourself to be my God of salvation, I will praise you for your righteousness. Well, we could go on. He associates constantly the word righteousness and salvation. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 51. I I know that there are as many verses that I haven't read, (laughs) but we just don't have time. And you get the point. So righteousness, uh, Isaiah 51, righteousness is God's acting... in accordance with his covenant for the sake of his people. I have a sheet that I was trying to read from and I lost it. Oh, that's in here. So from Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 51. We'll begin reading, and this is on page 612, if you're using the Bible that's in the pew. 612. Notice the association three times of righteousness and salvation. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, but they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. You see, constant association of righteousness and salvation. 
But you also catch the edges here of the judgment that will come as well. And so as you think of the righteousness of God, you think of it as God's saving and judging action in faithfulness to his covenant. It's God's saving and judging action in keeping in faithfulness to his covenant. And in that way, God vindicates his name and lifts up his name. He shows forth his character. He shows forth his faithfulness to his promise, his faithfulness to his covenant, which shows what kind of God he is. So he's lifting up his name by being faithful to his covenant. So manifesting his righteousness in this way is a wonderful thing to hear. It's like seeing the big ships coming into a restored harbor in Haiti or to see the the airships coming in one after another after another. The righteousness of God is being revealed. You see, this helps us understand a passage that may be puzzling when you first see it, like 1 John 1.9, when it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you, you don't tend to think of those two words, wait a minute, if he's just, he must punish my sin. If he's righteous and I'm unrighteous, he must inflict punishment. He must pour wrath upon me. But John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That's covenant language, you see. That's the language of the righteousness of God that acts for our salvation. The God who acts in keeping with his covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham that said, among other things, in you I will bless all the nations of the earth. And here in Romans 1... As Paul talks about the gospel that is going out to all the earth, how all are included, anyone who believes, Jew or Gentile, it's the unfolding of that glorious covenant for the whole earth at this point. The righteousness of God is revealed. This salvation that's going out to all the earth, and this salvation now is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's why... In Romans chapter 1, there's such an association of salvation and righteousness. Because in Romans 1, he says, this is the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of God for salvation? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, that's Old Testament language. It's just using the association, the clear revelation, God is acting for his people. God is acting to save in a powerful way. And it's for anyone who will trust. Anyone now. It's not just that he's acting on behalf of Jew. He's acting on behalf of Jew and Gentile. Anyone can be a part of his people. Anyone can be favored by this God. And so under the darkest canopy of wrath and hopelessness that not one single person has any hope, we're all shut up before the throne of God, before his judgment, then this glorious light breaks out in verse 21. But now, now, 
At this time, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And so, this glorious salvation, it's wonderful on the one hand, but as we're going to see, it it shakes us to the core on the other hand. And that's what happened with the Jews. Because the more you reveal the problem and the more you reveal how severe the act of God in order to solve that problem, it's offensive. James Boyce tells about an incident given by McKay in a book he wrote years ago in which a fellow was talking with a pretty wealthy English lady and he was talking to her about the sin of man. And she said, ladies do not sin. Okay, you know, ladies, ladies do not sin. We're, we're proper. We don't do things like that. And he says, well, who do you think sins? And he said, young men at certain times of their lives go through a sinning period. Okay, young men. Glad to know that's over for me. Uh, <laughs> okay, and I were talking about that. I'm almost 60. And boy, at 60, the, the only word for you is OLD. You know, that's just where I'm headed here. But um, <clears throat> So then he continues to talk to her about this. And to try to make the point, he says, you have to be saved in the same way that your coachman has to be saved. You're on the same level. And her response, well, then I will not be saved. That was her response. And in a sense, this was the Jewish response to Messiah. It was horrific to think of the Messiah associated with crucifixion. And then to hear, as Paul does in this passage, one through three, he's especially trying to convince the Jews that, look, this law first pertains to you. From this law, you don't take comfort and think, oh, I'm I'm safe from the wrath of God. It doesn't really matter how I live, and I don't have to be that consistent. As long as I do some of the law things here, I'm going to be safe. He says, no. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This law unhinges you spiritually and morally. And the revelation is that no, the death of Messiah was required for you. And he says, that became a stumbling block. Christ was a stumbling block for the Jews. For many of us, Christ will be a stumbling block. Another illustration is given by Spurgeon of a woman, uh, a man is a minister. He'd gotten some money from the church to bring to this woman. And he went to her neighborhood, found her house, went upstairs, knocked on the door, couldn't get her. So later he uh, saw her at church and he said, I came to you to deliver some money to you. She said, Oh, was that you? I thought it was the landlord asking for the rent. (laughs) And Spurgeon's making the point that many of us think that God is coming to us asking for the rent rather than unloading his riches upon us. But then the author who was using this illustration said, what we do is we are offended because we want to at least make a down payment on the rent. We don't want to think of ourselves as so without anything that 
all of it has to be paid for us. All of it. We can do nothing. We can contribute nothing. We are undone. We don't like that message. We don't like that word. So this is, at the same time, the most wonderful news to hear. And yet in another way, it's the most devastating if we can't face our own sin. And so this righteousness of God is both a saving righteousness and a judging righteousness. Earlier in chapter 2, he talks about God's righteous judgment in verse 5. So it's a complex word. It's not simply what he does to save, but it's also what he does in judgment. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it talks about his righteous judgment in which he will pour out wrath upon the wicked who've been afflicting the righteous. And so he's manifesting his righteous judgment. But you see, in, in both cases, he's vindicating his name. He's showing who he is as God, majestic in righteousness, majestic in his salvation. And so in his great acts of righteousness through Christ, we have the word redemption here in verse 24. And redemption means... In the first place, deliverance, its backdrop is the deliverance from Egypt or the deliverance from exile when Israel was cast into exile. It has also the idea of being delivered from bondage and tyranny of evil. And so the Lord Jesus in his act on the cross delivers us. There's also the idea of ransom, of a price paid. This is... The, the word here is the word for marketplace, and, and it's the verb to, to be marketed <laughs> means to buy in the market. And so this points to the price that is paid. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says that you have been bought. Notice, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, You've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish, blemish or spot, First Peter 1. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, You've been bought with the price. You are not your own. We watch antique road shows some, and it's always interesting, isn't it? Somebody brings something in and says, you know, I'll pay $25 for it. And this guy bought it, you know, at some guy's house somewhere. And you think, okay, that's great. And the guy says, well, I just have you know, this is such and such antique. It was 1800s. It's worth $15,000. <laughs> I've never thought I wish I had it. Of course, I wouldn't think that. I just um, <clears throat> wish I had bought that thing. It's always amazing, isn't it, how much they're really worth. And it made me think uh, somehow about our bidding at the missions uh, when we raise money. And sometimes it gets pretty funny and, and cool when uh, Jennifer Cobble has one of her carrot cakes for sale. And it may go, you think, you know, somebody will buy $20 for it, $25. No, it goes for 100 or more. And then they put it back in, it goes for another 100 you know. But what if we were doing this, and, and Jennifer's carrot cake is up there, and you hear a voice in the back, $10,000. Imagine everybody just, who, every head would turn to whoever said that. And you'd, if you couldn't see, who said that? Who said that? You know, 
Just be amazed. $10,000. We just think of this. A sinner is put in front of you. A sinner. And the features of this sinner, he's not righteous. He doesn't seek for God. He doesn't understand. He doesn't glorify God. He's an idolater. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He doesn't trust him. He doesn't love him. He doesn't do anything. Of course, everybody's just got, you know, it's like somebody bringing out a cheap painting and say, would anybody start the bidding at a dollar? You know, and nobody even wants it because it's not even worth a dollar. And then you hear from the back, I bid the blood of my son. You know, every eye turns, what? What? The, the price lavished for this? For this one, a ransom paid. And then the Lord submitting to his father, I will identify myself with him. I will take up his cause. I will represent him. I will act on his behalf. I will put myself in his place. I will bear his punishment. I will bear the wrath of God. I will shed my blood for him. Just over what he just... There's no category for it. It's like Paul says, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The other word here is propitiation. And I know it's a bit late, but we want to touch on this word. It's such a critical word. Propitiation has to do with a satisfaction, an atonement. It has reference to God. It's what Christ does to appease the wrath of God. But we don't need to think of as God the Father is standing over there separate and Christ is trying to appease Him in that sense. No, it says the Father is the one that provides. As He says in the Old Testament, I have given you these sacrifices for your benefit. The Father provides His Son. The actual word for the Jews delivering up Jesus, betraying him, that same word doesn't mean betray, but it, it's used of God. He delivered up his son for us. He did it. He did it. And the idea is life is represented in blood. So blood shed like the blood at the Passover, it represented that a life has been taken, a life has been given up. And so, if we use our life, the life that God's give us, given us, to revolt against Him, it's just that that life be taken from us. And that's exactly what God said in Genesis 3. If you sin against me, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good, you will die. If you decide to take your life and revolt against me, you, you lose your life. It's gone. And so, strictly, every sin should be followed by immediate death. Immediate death. That's what sin deserves. Immediate, eternal death. Right then and there. And yet... There have been people forgiven by God, people in fellowship with God, people who went to live with God. 
And yeah, there were animal sacrifices, but what's an animal sacrifice? And then there's the continual course of the world in which all these people rebel against God and God just lets them live. He lets them get married. He gives them food every day. He gives them water. What are you thinking? <laughs> that, that's the perspective. It's, as one commentator says, in one sense, the whole world has been a continual scandal against God. A continual scandal of unrighteousness. And yet, is there a righteous God? Is there a judge? And so in propitiation, in propitiation, the wrath of God is made known against His own Son. And that's why He says, He was put forward as a propitiation This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, so that He might be righteous as He declares others acceptable. How how could He do that? How could He declare us acceptable? How could He declare us righteous and free And still be a righteous God. But he did so through the propitiation, through the blood. It's the propitiation by his blood. By the giving up of his life. And so, just at the moment that God would declare us not guilty, there would be the danger, the terrible danger, that he is indifferent to sin. That his Righteousness doesn't exist, but it's right there that His righteousness shines the brightest. And when you and I submit to Christ, we honor that righteousness because we say, that's what I deserve. It's like one man on the mission field, a native said years ago, speaking of Christ, understanding that Christ was on the cross, he says, away from that Christ, that's my place. It was just his emotive cry. No, no, that's where I belong. And every, every sinner really comes to that place of recognizing, I, I, I deserve that. that I, I should be there, but you took my place. You see, at the very time we trust in Christ, it's a, it, in a sense, the sin that judges Christ is judged in our conscience as well. It's judged in our conscience. We agree with that judgment. We say it's right. We, we have that in our confession. First question. Do you see that you are without hope, that you deserve the, the judgment of God? And you see, if you refuse Christ, there can be no doubt in your mind, judgment will fall on me. Because it was judgment falling on Christ. And that's the only hope that judgment won't fall on me. And believe you me, if you turn away from Christ, you have no hope but judgment. It's either pardon or judgment through Christ. Well, we see in this, Just in conclusion, 
God's zeal and passion, his wholehearted rescue of us. We, we see him coming into the earthquake to rescue us in Christ. We see also our helplessness to save ourselves. Right before he talks about redemption, he says, why must this happen? Why has it to be only through faith? He repeats again, summarizes verse 23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We're all at the precipice of his wrath. There's all this, for all of us, the certainty of judgment. But we have in here the freedom of Christ. If Christ is judged for you and you trust in him, Paul says later in Romans chapter 5, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And later in chapter 8, there's no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it's not just no condemnation. We're children. We're fellow heirs with Christ and what he will inherit. We're so associated with Christ. Now all things work together for good. Now God will do all things for us. All favor is upon us because Christ has taken everything away in the judgment that fell upon him. So we're left, we're left free, but kind of trembling, trembling over what Christ has accomplished. And to think then, if, as Christ is punished for, for, for sin, that we would make sin our friend, that we would be anything but an enemy to what it did to our Savior. And finally, you know, Shelley Frederick's dad went down to Haiti. He's an orthopedic, as many orthopedics, to do some very hard work there. You and I, this is amazing. We were in the earthquake, and now we're sent into the earthquake. It's an amazing thing. I thought about how terrible to do all these amputations. They're able to do some repairs, but just to be there and be able to help people. Dear friends, dear friends, it's what Thomas and Jonathan were talking about. You are the light of the world. You, Jesus said it. You bring salvation. You manifest the righteousness of God. It's through your goodness and, and, and mercy and the proclamation of Christ that the righteousness of God has an effect on other people. What a thing to be a vehicle of the ongoing saving power of God in the earthquake of this world, in the tsunami of destruction that is in this earth. You cannot neglect it. You cannot. By God's grace, He will make it so. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we... How can we thank You? How can we get our minds around what Christ has done? paying this ransom for us, making atonement for us, satisfying this wrath. This wrath is revealed, this righteous judgment upon us. And yet here, Paul says, that wrath has been poured out upon his own son. God has taken the intolerable burden of his wrath upon himself 
that it might not fall on us. Oh Lord, if there's any person here that has not come to Christ and confessed his or her sinfulness and confessed his or her need, his or her desert, his deserving of judgment. As you said, the wages of sin is death. If there's anyone here that has not come to that conclusion and then trusted in Jesus Christ as their only hope, to be saved from the guilt and power and dominion of sin, to be brought into a new life of being now more and more like God instead of unlike God. Oh, Lord, work in that person's life even now. Stir them up. Convict him or her of sin and draw them to trust in Jesus Christ even from this day forth. And oh, Lord, may all of us give you praise for what you've done. May we all walk in the freedom of those who've been set free, redeemed, redeemed from guilt and redeemed from dominion, that we walk in new life now because of what Christ has done at such such a pain to himself. Oh, Lord, may our hearts fix all the more upon you. May they fasten on you in love and devotion and submission and praise. Oh, bless us. Bless us, precious Lord Jesus. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?